You're listening to Big Table, a podcast about books and conversation, presented by Invisible Republic, Hattonbeard Press, Dub Lab, and Gold Diggers in Los Angeles. I'm your host, JC Gable. For each episode, we speak to one author about a singular book in a long-form interview. Each interview is then followed by a brief reading, sometimes from the same book being discussed, sometimes by a like-minded title and a different author. But every episode does retain a loose theme throughout and is inspired by the work of radio host and oral historian Studs Turkle. Thanks for listening. Jason Jules is a writer, blogger, stylist, brand consultant, and devoted Ivyist. The face of Drakes of London and the author of the John Simons film documentary, A Modernist, Jules is widely recognized as the most stylish man in London media and culture. Described by Complex Magazine as having a style akin to a living, breathing jazz song, he is also the creator of the online and real-world style brand, Garmsville. His latest book, Black Ivy, published by Real Art Press, charts a period in American history when black men across the country adopted clothing seen by many as the preserve of a privileged elite and made it their own. From the Oxford button-down shirt and the hand-stitched loafer and the military reptile, these otherwise conventional clothes are instilled with an approach so revolutionary that you'll never be able to see them the same way again. This is an art book about clothes, but it's also about freedom, both individual and collective. From the most avant-garde jazz musicians, visual artists and poets, to the more influential architects, philosophers, political leaders and writers, Black Ivy explores the major role this particular style of clothing played during this period of aspiration and upheaval, and what these clothes said about the people who wore them. Once again, our man in London, Dermot McPartland, will be handling interviewing duties for this episode. Here's Dermot's conversation with Jason Jules. I love the book and it was, um, it's very you, obviously. And um, it's also, it feels incredibly timely. Um, And I can't think of many books in recent times that have got an editorial in The Guardian. No. (laughs) So that's that's quite an achievement, actually. That was, that felt pretty major, to be honest. I mean, what was great about that was that the writer got it. He completely understood what the the book was really about. And, you know, like, like yourself and Michelle, it's not really about fashion. You know, fashion and clothing is is a tool and a medium and an excuse to talk about other stuff. And so, you know, he he completely understood that it was like a a subversive um, piece of work rather than, you know, this kind of um, love story to the Ivy League look. It was more like an exploration of what what, um, the civil rights movement was attempting to achieve and and what, in the end, it did achieve. How long has this been in your system that you needed to get out? I think it's kind of built built up over time. I mean, there was like kind of these little kind of, it'd be wrong to call them microaggressions, but little moments where I figured actually this, this story needs to be corrected. 
literally over decades. Um, from my, maybe my first time I went to New York and in, to my thinking, my, my sense of self, I was dressed quite nicely, you know, pair of loafers, um, tapered trousers, flat fronts, um, a soft shoulder jacket, button down shirt, walking through Manhattan. And, you know, New York is one of those places where people think it, they say it. So someone, uh, one guy on, a, on, a, on some scaffolding called out Urkel. I'm like, I know, I don't know what you're talking about, but I know it's a, a diss. I know it's not a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked up this Urkel and um, it turned out that it's a character in this American TV series. And he's like a, a black or a, a black geek and is an object of, of ridicule. And I'm like, but what I'm wearing is, is to my mind is like, you know, is dead on. And so either I'm completely wrong or they're missing something. Mm. And it was moments like that that kind of made me start building up this, this narrative that people saw this clothing as the, the, the ownership of, <clears throat> of, of white America. A kind of waspy yeah, audience. Yeah, yeah. completely. And the, the black people had no, number one, no contribution to it, but also no right to wear it. And since I was so committed to it, I had to figure out, you know, why is it that I'm committed to this look? Why is it that I know a lot of people who are, many of them who aren't white? And how is it that there's this, this idea? Because what, what, of course, goes with it is the idea that, you know, if it's Ivy League, then it's based on this elite college environment. So part of that mm -hmm. is that you're, you have no right to be part of an elite, but also you have no right to, to have this kind of um, premium education. Yeah. So it's all, it all this stuff that's kind of coming into my mind from literally from little moments like that. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it, it was a period of years for me to kind of think about this. And I love the way you, you broke it into, um, you know, literature, music, architecture, you know, you, all the different disciplines. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a great kind of, swagger and confidence and um defiance mm. about the book you know which i think is really important and, and that's why i think it's so prescient and so i think if you maybe if you did it five years ago it wouldn't had the kind of you know the the the, the sense that it's of its time now it's a yeah. story worth telling do you get that yeah. sense absolutely i mean i you know, I must confess, for the past couple of years, I've been spending a lot of time watching CNN and MSNBC. And, you know, because of the, the political situation there. And um, in a way, a lot of what, was, what I was witnessing informed how I constructed or how we constructed the book. Yeah. And so stuff like, you know, when I, I'm looking at stuff like the, the voter registration battles that happened in Mississippi in the 60s, and how they parallel to what's happening now, mm. it, it does, like you say, bring a lot of life to it. You know, it's not this, this kind of dusty moment in history that has no relevance and resonance. It actually is almost like being repeated and can be seen as a lesson for what's mm. happening now. So I was definitely informed by you know, the current affairs of the day. So I think you're right. I would never have been able to write something like that, you know, five, six years ago. It just yeah. wouldn't have made that kind of much that kind of sense really. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's also, you know, the, I only found out very recently that the word woke is mm. something that was actually coined by African-Americans in the 50s. Right. You know, and so that's, a, you know, we all think that's a new phenomenon, a new word, but that's a word that's 50 years old. You know, mm. that pe people, people would say, you know, I'm woke, man. You know, I'm yeah. kind of, I'm on it, you know, I'm sus. Yeah. I know what's going on, um, and um, and I think you really managed to make the thing not like a museum piece, that very much alive. Mm. Um, I guess. Do you, do you still think that that ivy or black ivy is still a thing with um, with young black men? I think so. Yeah. I mean, in fact. Definitely. I mean, one thing that I didn't want the book to be was like a nostalgia trip. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not. Yeah. You know, the something that I got from John Simons very early on was that, okay, we can honor the past and have a kind of traditional understanding, but actually when, as a modernist, if you want to be a modernist, then you don't look back. No. And, and the, you know, some of the guys that like, you know, like Kevin Rowland's, that I hang out with, there's a, <laughs> the purity of not being nostalgic about things, not trying to put a gloss on stuff. Mm. Um, so, yeah, to me, what I see now is a lot of black kids who are basically appropriating styles or taking styles and, and using them in their own way. And because they're, you know, we have this, this landscape of, of social media, they can pick up ideas very, very easily, very quickly, and kind of just mix them in their in their own way. So, definitely, I mean, I, I got a, I had a conversation with Tyler, the creator, last week, and he was saying how the book really resonated with him. Great. And in a sense, he was one of the inspirations for the book. If I, if I had the the chance, I would have got him to, you know, do the intro, do the the foreword, because it's not. You know, the way he dresses, the way he approaches music, the way he approaches his own style is is very, you know, black ivy, let's say. Mm. As in yes. there's a there's a kind of an elite um set of there's elite an elite wardrobe, let's call it, that he is taking and and dressing in his own way. And reappropriating, yeah. And reappropriating yeah. and giving a completely new meaning to. Mm. And I think that's that's what Black Ivy, in, in essence, is, is about. So, yeah. And but then also there's people like Andre 3000, there's mm. Pharrell Williams, you know, there's there's loads of guys. And in a sense, you know, those are the, the kind of more famous ones. But, you know, I, I know of a, a whole community of people who are doing just that as well. Yeah, I know Tyler is a very good example. Um, and Frank Ocean, I guess, too, yeah. to another extent. Um, I always think of... Um, the great Charles Bukowski quote about style, which is, um, style is the answer to everything, a fresh way to approach a dull or dangerous thing. To do a dull thing with style is preferable to doing a dangerous thing without it. To do a dangerous thing with style is what I call art, you know? And, and I think it, it, it kind of troubles me when I see the book in, in fashion, because I think it's beyond fashion. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a frame of mind, you know. So in terms of your own personal style, was, your, was it a family thing? Was your dad stylish? Did he get dressed up for Sunday best? Can you talk about yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, in a sense, the, the book is, 
you know, in a sense, I am more anti-fashion than fashion. So I think you're completely right. It's, you know, there, there's a, a genre that it might fit into, but really it's, it's not a fashion book. Um, my dad, my, both my mum, my dad met my mum when they were studying, um, my mum was studying dressmaking. My dad was studying tailoring in the West Indies. And he came to London when he was about 20. And my mum followed when she was about 18, so a few years later. And my dad wanted to pursue tailoring because he'd, you know, he'd done all the exams. He was a fully fledged tailor, but he didn't recognize his, his qualifications in the UK. So he ended up working at Ford's foundry, um, basically doing shifts. So he'd work, you know, one week daytime, one week nighttime. And my mom, when she came, she basically had to hustle to figure out how to get a job as a machinist. Um, they kept on saying you need experience, but they would never give her a job to get the experience. And there was these huge kind of monster machines that they'd have in, in these um, factories that she knew how to, to, to sew on a machine, but these machines were like high tech with lots of different kind of um, bobbins and threads and all sorts of stuff. Mm. So after about two months of, of trying to figure out how to, you know, get this job, she actually... Um, went into a machine shop where they sold the, the sewing machines and mm. said, I'm interested in buying a machine. Can you, you know, give me a demonstration? So they sat her down, gave her a demonstration of how to use one of these machines. And to the point where she figured out how to, to thread the needle in this machine, how to maneuver it, how to sew stuff. She spent about 20 minutes figuring out how to use the machine. Then she crossed the street and went into one of these factories and said, I have experience, give me the job. And that was the only way she's ever gonna, she was ever going to get a job in, in, you know, in the industry that she'd been trained in. Mm. Um, but my dad, he would basically make clothes for people at home. And, and that was pretty much how he, he pursued his, his commitment, his passion for clothing. But they were both, both, my dad passed about four years ago, but they were both into clothes, like super into clothes. Yeah, yeah. Um, who coined the phrase Black Ivy? I don't think it, I think like, um, you know, when you talk about skinheads in the 70s or the late 60s, 70s, skinheads didn't call themselves skinheads. <laughs> you know, they were like knuckleheads or whatever, but they weren't skinheads. Um, very similar in this instance, the Black Ivy wasn't a you know per se a name it's something that you know i've i've discussed with other people to just to describe this this period but i think if you looked in you know those history books if they existed then that word wouldn't exist mm. so it's essentially something that i might be accused of having created myself to coin a period of time just in terms of in europe um seeing this kind of American style, this kind of um, collegiate style, or whatever you want to call it. Um, I guess the, the the primary way for you know for you know young black men to see would be the record cover, especially the Blue Note records. And I've got Graham's book here, um, the Blue Note covers, um, but also the movies. Yeah, I mean that's it, television. Not to the same extent if you were outside the US, but definitely the movies. I mean, the movies must have been 
where yeah. you where you got you know John Cooper Clark's um, memoir "I Want to Be Yours" is very good on this because he's also really into his clothes and he's going to cinemas in Manchester in the fifties, early sixties, and he's seeing stuff that he just wants to get hold of. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think between between film and music, the the influence was huge. Um, when you look at Sidney Poitier, for example, I mean, he obviously is a ridiculously amazing icon. But then also what we have to remember is that there'd be newsreels and, you know, news bulletins, and you'd see Malcolm X or Martin Luther King on TV. And very in a similar way, the minute you saw a black person on television, the whole family would you know, be called in to, to look and see what the story was. So it wasn't just film and music, which played a hugely important part, but also those moments where there'd be these debates or these news stories about, you know, these civil rights leaders as well that would, would you know, bring our attention. And, of course, you'd see, you know, somebody who was really important was, was Muhammad Ali. Yeah. You know, just like, it, I think, probably one of the most important kind of figures in that, that, that whole narrative because not only did he dress in a certain way, but he was, you know, rebellious, he was outspoken, and he, he was antagonistic in a sense that a lot of the establishment, a lot of people would frame him as, as anti-establishment, whereas the black audiences, the people in, you know, in my community, my household, would, would really warm to that and see that as an as a inspirational thing. Mm. So, um, you know, and the way he dressed could not be separated from the way he spoke. So yeah. it, was, it was super important. Yeah. So there are all these, these small kind of little elements that actually built up to this bigger picture of, of what eventually I would construct and understand to be, you know, a, a Black Ivy movement. Getting slightly nerdy in terms of some of the items themselves, the clothing, um, is it true that, for instance, the ties didn't really have the colours that you would expect from the kind of waspy brigade that they, I, they, they were very kind of monotone and plain i i'm not sure about that i think part of the the mission for certainly civil rights activists was to be as toned down and as buttoned down as possible so whereas we might like to think that there was this kind of vibrancy and kind of um you know capacity to to show off that you know tends to happen when people are into clothes. I think in this instance there was a, a a severity and a kind of conservatism because the clothes had to provide had to you know had a function mm. and they were well they were worn to be seen. They weren't worn necessarily just for comfort, but they were worn to be seen. They were worn because these guys were aware that the whole world was looking at them and trying to deconstruct what their intent was. And one of the things I wanted to communicate was that their intent wasn't revolution. It was rebellion, but it wasn't to overturn the establishment. It was actually to basically kind of force the establishment to include them. So part of it definitely was a conservative urge, if you know what I mean. So in in the kind of mid to late 60s in the US, when things started to go really bad and the civil rights movement and Dr. King and mm. is it 
is it right to say that some of the people who may have dressed in that kind of ivy look adopted more of a kind of military Black Panther look and they kind of swapped the suit for the leather jacket and the beret? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and if that's the case, did it take a while for the Black Ivy look to kind of come back again? Essentially, yeah. I mean, because what, what the Black Ivy look kind of embodied was a political a political approach and once Martin Luther King uh, JFK and Malcolm X had gone that approach that approach had, had almost been proven to to be a failure in a sense to people because many of them didn't think that they'd achieved what they set out to achieve which was equality so after those assassinations the new approach was a much more radical, much more militant one. And that required a much more radical, much more militant type of dress, which, as you said, was the berets, the military boots. But also, you know, part of the, one of the essential accessories of, of that look was the gun, you know, the rifle. Yeah. And um, that was the complete opposite to the Ivy look, which is about being a pacifist and, you know, peaceful protest. So, it did take a while for this look to kind of re-emerge. And, but it's, in a, in a way, its significance never kind of completely died. You know, if you look at, um, I don't know, people like Belle Biv DeVoe and um, Boys to Men, etc. But then you look later on at, at Andre 3000. There are always these kind of, pockets of the look that kind of keep on re-emerging. It's never completely erased, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's always people basically trying to elaborate on that particular style, but in a, in a really honourable way, not basically for the sake of, not in a way that they're lampooned or discredited, but actually recognising its, its value and its contribution to, to black culture as a whole. Mm. So, you know, it's never really died. But I think at the moment, there's this, this, again, like I said, like we said, there's this kind of powerful reemergence, partly because, like you say, there's this kind of awareness of what it means to be woke, I mean, fully woke, and also the diversity of the challenge. You know, there's so many different ways of approaching this situation. And I think Black Ivy as a style is, is one of them, is recognised as being one of them. Black Ivy, A Revolt in Style, published by Real Art Press, is out now in hardcover. For the reading this episode, Jason Jules reads from the introduction to Black Ivy. Style is about the freedom to be oneself, to authentically express oneself, and in doing so, reject limitations imposed by others. A consciousness of style, in essence, emerges when one asserts one's right to self-definition and the right to take control of one's own identity. 
This is a story about menswear. This is an untold story about style. A revolt in style. It's a story about a generation of people challenging the status quo, demanding racial and civil rights. It's a story of one of the most volatile and incendiary periods in American history. But it's also a story about dignity and the fight for self-determination. For the first time, we explore the major role this style of clothing played during this period of upheaval and social change and what these clothes said about the men who wore them. When it comes to this period and these clothes, it's often mistakenly argued that black men appropriated this style out of a desire to be white, coming from a deep sense of inferiority. In reality, the urge to wear these clothes was in no small part born of the desire to demonstrate that equality which had been so fiercely denied them over the years. Countering racist perceptions, the goal was to be recognized as at least equal to the rights they were fighting for, not only in the eyes of the American mainstream, but throughout the world. Rather than a sign of conformity and compliance, black ivy was a kind of battle dress, a symbolic armor worn in the nonviolent pursuit of fundamental change. Making society treat them differently meant making the mainstream see them differently first. And they did. To support Big Table, go to invisiblerepublic.org and click on the Big Table link. There you will find many ways to financially support this podcast. And thanks in advance. Big Table is produced and presented by Hatton Beard Press and Dub Lab in Los Angeles and is written and edited by yours truly, J.C. Gable. Our sound designer and editor is Matea Baim. Our engineer is Jacob Ross. Special thanks to Alejandro Ale Cohen and Mark Frosty McNeil from Dub Lab for early encouragement and support, and to file-sharing company WeTransfer for helping sponsor this experiment in audio storytelling. Big Table is also funded in part by Invisible Republic, a nonprofit arts organization based in Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York. You can find out more about their programming and publications at invisiblerepublic.org. Thanks again for listening.